Let's see, how about this? Can you hear me now? Okay. Um, well, thank you all for coming. And uh, we're really excited to um, present this very special session of Nursing Grand Rounds. Um, Deb Hastings, I'm the Director of Continuing Nursing Education here at Dartmouth Hitchcock. And again, we welcome you. Uh, I know uh, several of you are um, watching from your personal computers, listening on your personal computers. And we are also archiving this session so that folks can access the information um, after we're finished. Um, so before I begin, I do have um, a few um, special requests. I'd like to remind you to sign in on the attendance, attendance sheet here so that we do have a record of your attendance. And if you're watching remotely, um, we'd like you to contact Judy Langhans, that's judith.m, as in Mary, dot Langhans, L-A-N-G-H-A-N-S, at the conclusion of this program so that she can re record your attendance as well. Um, and if our remote learners do have a question or comment, you can send that information um, to our speaker by sending the email request directly to Judy, and she'll relay that uh, question or comment. You will receive evaluation forms electronically soon after the end of this program. Um, we want you to know that you should be present for 80% of the program in order to earn your CE credit. And we do appreciate your feedback, so please um, be candid in your uh, comments to us. We do plan future offerings in part based on what um, the information you provide. Your contact hours will uh, appear on your electronic transcript in two to three weeks. Um, in terms of disclosure, our speaker, Dr. Laurie Bakken's husband, Dr. Kurt Olson, is a consultant to Clear Creek Research, and in addition, he is the editor of the Journal of Continuing Education in the Health Professions. And um, other than this disclosure, no one else on the planning committee um, had anything to disclose, nor did anyone refuse to disclose. Just a reminder to silence your cell phones and pages out of respect for our presenter. Um, and now, um, without further ado, I'd like to present our guest speaker to you, Dr. Laurie Bakken. Uh, Dr. Bakken um, uh, comes to us from the University of Wisconsin in Madison, where she earned her bachelor's degree, uh, master's degree, and PhD. Her PhD is in continuing and vocational education. Undergraduate and graduate degrees are in medical technology, medical microbiology, and immunology. She has nearly 25 years of experience conducting evaluations in the medical, public health, and education fields. Um, she currently holds an appointment here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock as an associate professor in the Geisel School of Medicine, and she directs teaching and research in education outcomes assessment for the Center for Continuing Education in the Health Professions at, uh, here at the Medical Center. We are thrilled to have her with us today. This is a topic that um, we know is of great importance, particularly to folks who are in uh, education, especially nursing education. And so we welcome um, the opportunity to learn from Dr. Bakken today. So thank you, Laurie, for uh, agreeing to present this afternoon. Thank you, Deb. <laughs> welcome, everyone. Um, so today I'm talking about evaluating outcomes of nursing education programs. Uh, our learning objectives for today are to use logic modeling to conceptualize a program's theory of change, be able to describe the components of an outcomes evaluation, 
select appropriate indicators for an outcomes evaluation, um, and being using three different types of study designs. There are multiple, but we'll focus on a few that may be familiar to you. <coughs> So as an overview of my presentation, I'm going to start out describing fundamentals, fundamental concepts of evaluation, uh, definitions and examples of outcomes, using logic models to determine outcomes, steps in an outcomes evaluation um, for which are engaging stakeholders, evaluation questions and study designs, outcome indicators and data collection and analysis reporting, disseminating, and using the results of our evaluations. I will conclude by uh, making some key points and then opening it up for questions. So why evaluate a program? Well, it provides a systematic way to demonstrate a program's value, worth, or effectiveness. It provides information to help make decisions and improve our programs. Evaluations also help us to learn what works and doesn't work in our programming efforts. It helps us to know whether a program has achieved its desired changes or impacted people, organizations, or communities. It also enables us to demonstrate the effectiveness of our programs to funders. As you know, our, our, or our the country is becoming increasingly um, having to become more accountable, and I'll cover that in a minute. So it's really important that these skill we use learn to use these skills in evaluating our efforts of our education. <clears throat> so some principles of evaluation are that you collect information. <clears throat> we assess that information against some criteria that we pre-established in our evaluation. And we make decisions uh, uh, either to continue or maybe not continue some of our programs or improve them. Uh, Michael P Quinn Patton would call this reporting or learning. So I'm going to start with just a little cookie scenario to reinforce some of these concepts. Suppose I asked you to bake the best chocolate chip cookie in town. How would you define best? In other words, what criteria would you use to determine the best cookie? Anyone have an idea? Chewy. Chewy, yeah. The amount of chocolate that's in it. The amount of chocolate. color, like how, if it's overcooked or undercooked or? The color, don't want them to look too black. <laughs> okay. And then how would you know that you bake the best cookie in town? Any ideas there? Depends on how many were eaten. Depends on how many were eaten. <laughs> okay. Which one tasted the best? Which one tasted the best? How would you go about it? Knowing. Ask people. Ask, uh-huh. Tasting test. Take test tasting. Taste test. Test. <laughs> test taking. <laughs> yeah, those are some examples of the way you, you would collect information, gauge it against your criteria in order to make a decision about what would be the best cookie. Um, so some approaches to evaluation. Um, include 
expertise oriented, which is the kind that we are used to um, in when accredited, accreditation bodies um, have standards, those kinds of things. Um, also something as simple as judges at a county fair, that's an expertise oriented approach to evaluation. Consumer oriented approaches are those that we see from day to day in our usual grocery shopping or whatever, sort of that marketing, trying to understand what the consumer likes, what they purchase, those kinds of things. Those are consumer oriented evaluation approaches. The ones that are most common in education um, and many other sectors that do a lot of education are program oriented approaches. There are three basic types of program-oriented approaches. Um, Objectives-oriented, which many of you may be familiar with already. This is sort of, you know, we, we define learning objectives as we create our programs and then we evaluate our learners based on whether or not they've achieved those um, learning objectives. This is a very traditional approach to evaluation. Um, and it's since been expanded to think more broadly about our programs. And in program evaluation, we currently use a lot of theory-driven approaches, and outcomes evaluation is one of those theory-driven approaches. There's also a form of program evaluation called goal-free evaluation. These approaches are used when we really have no clue as to what outcomes are, are that we have in mind, and we need to understand them before we can actually create things like theories and, and um, outcomes to assess. Uh, so, they, those tend to be used in a different type of manner, but again, program-oriented. Decision-oriented approaches were a group of approaches that were designed specifically so that decisions could be, made, could be made about programs and whether or not to continue them. Um, any of these approaches can, are used to make decisions, but these approaches in particular have models that are really oriented in that fashion. Participant-oriented approaches are those kinds of approaches that seek to involve as many stakeholders as possible in the evaluation, planning, implementation, and reporting process, um, and to various degrees. And so um, those are, are heavily used, especially in the community sector right now. I personally really like to use them and advocate for them as much participation as, as possible because it does tend to get more buy-in and cooperation from those that you um, that have vested interests in your programs or a stake in your programs. Um, <clears throat> Utilization-focused evaluations are specifically focused on uh, utilization, making sure that we use the findings of our evaluations, program evaluations. Um, Michael Patton is the person that's um, really responsible for, for forcing this agenda. Um, and then systems-based evaluation approaches. These are very emergent in the field right now. Um, thinking about our programs within the larger context of the organizations and communities in which they function. And two particular approaches within those kinds of uh, evaluation approaches are developmental evaluation and collective impact. Developmental evaluation, again, was um, designed by Michael Patton and is really intended for those, um, for very complex evaluations in highly complex systems. And um, 
they're becoming to be used more and more, especially in healthcare and, and broader community settings, where you have multiple organizations working to trying to work together and no clear outcomes initially and they have to evolve with time. It's also a very responsive kind of evaluation in the sense that feedback the evaluator stays totally engaged in the process, becomes a facilitator, a coach, and keeps the um, the process moving. Collective impact is a type of evaluation that's particularly um, being used in the nonprofit sector right now. And the utility of that is it's really thinking about um, how collectively our programs work towards a common or shared agenda. And so backbone organizations are important. Communication is important. Um, it, you know, a shared agenda is important, uh, people have to work together, and um, they share common tools, evaluation tools, they have to decide on common outcomes to collect. It doesn't preclude them from doing other things around evaluation, it just gives them some central way to bring them together and, and show their collective impact on, say, something like healthcare in a community to um, improve nutrition and decrease obesity. Um, so those are becoming very com more, much more common and being used a lot by funders as well as um, some of the nonprofit funders give out their um, funds. They expect that their the organizations they're funding are going to be working together and establish some collective means of working together and evaluating their efforts. So why outcomes evaluation? Why is it so important and why is it so prominent right now in, in um, education? Well, our nation is, has become increasingly um, oriented towards accountability. We've had some trip ups in various sectors of our country um, and, and it started my, my initial re recollection of when all this started was way back with no child left behind and it just kept crossing into other areas and kept coming and coming. And so what we're seeing is a need to improve what we do and to demonstrate that what we do works and has an impact on the things we intended to. It also has um, <clears throat> led to deciding who gets funding. So evaluation is almost in every part, uh, or in, in a, as a part of every single grant that's being given by nonprofits and federal organizations right now. So it's very important that we have a good understanding of how to design these. So the purpose and use of an outcomes evaluation. The purpose is to determine a program's effectiveness in achieving its outcomes. We can also use outcomes evaluation to study how a program is achieving its desired outcomes. So it's not just the outcomes themselves, but the process for achieving those outcomes. Results are typically used to aid decision making or improve programs. And I'll show you a diagram in a minute that's, that talks a little bit more about that. <clears throat> So here it is. <laughs> um, so there are two primary functions of evaluation. Um, you may be very familiar with these, the formative function and the summative function. Formative, fun uh, formative evaluations are designed for improving programs. Summative evaluations are designed for assessing programs. Um, but when you put those types of functions against the 
program stages of process and outcomes, and I see my S trail there, apologize for that, <laughs> um, that um, we really see four, four different general categories of evaluation, and outcomes occupies two of them. So we have um, outcome evaluations to um, assess programs, but we also have outcome evaluations to improve programs. And I will show you some, some designs like that as we go, go through these slides together. <laughs> so what is an outcome? It's a result of one or more activities it reflects a change, and this is extremely important to, to re remember, that it, if it's not reflecting a change, it, it really isn't a, an outcome. We're, we're, our programs are designed to, to change things, and so outcomes should always reflect a change in people, groups, organizations, communities, um, whatever um, it happens to be that we're targeting. It also is um, outcomes lead to meaningful impacts. And one of the things I've noticed in practice is that outcomes and impacts are often really confused. And oftentimes impacts are called outcomes and outcomes are called impact and it, the distinction is not clearly made. As I go through these slides, I'm going to define those terms more clearly so you can see those how they're distinguished in practice. Outcomes also answer the question, so what? If I do my program, so what do I expect will happen? It's really important that they answer those bigger questions because in other, why would we want to invest resources and time into doing those programs if they really weren't achieving some sort of goals or impact? It's also, they, outcome evaluations and outcomes need to be realistic. So they need to be plausible and feasible to collect information on and to conduct. And their time, outcomes are time sensitive. What is an outcome immediately after, or a month after our, our program implementation is not assessed at the, same, at the same level as it is three, six, a year out from our program. So it's really important to be thinking about the time slice that you're capturing when you assess an outcome. <clears throat> Types of outcomes. There are program-centered outcomes, and these are the ones we're typically familiar with, things like learning outcomes, um, the immediate um, acquisition of resources for our programs. If one of our program goals was to provide some additional scholarships, one of the outcomes would, might be to see, well, how many scholarships did we actually provide? So they're very oriented around the program. So they aren't just learner-centered, but they, are also, they can also be learner or participant-centered, but they can also be focused more on your program operations. There are also outcomes um, oriented towards your organization. So if I change somebody's knowledge, skills, and attitudes, and if in turn that changes their, the way they um, perform in their uh, uh, work environment, then we expect to also see some change within the organizations that they work in. So there are organization-centered outcomes to consider as well in, in outcomes evaluation. <laughs> Taking it one step further, and this happens in communities um, and could, can happen in medical centers as well. So if I provide better patient care in my organization, then 
how does that impact their life in their communities? How does it impact their communities? Um, so there are lots of ways to think about outcomes at various levels and how they trickle over into one sector and the other. Outcomes are also, as I mentioned, outcomes are results of what we, what we do, but thinking about it in terms of results of what we do, they're the gets of what we do. So a get is something like having healthy newborns. Well, to get them, the things we do are provide good prenatal care. We're hoping that moms take good care of themselves during pregnancy and, and those types of things. So in very simple forms, the outcomes are the gets of what we do. <clears throat> this may look familiar to some of you. This is the basic structure of a logic model, which includes input and activities that lead to outputs, outcomes, and impacts. These are the do's and the outputs, outcomes, and impacts are the things that we get from our program. So this is breaking what we do and get into some pieces that we um, that are part of our programming efforts. We design into our programs. To talk about the logic model and explain the logic model a bit further, our inputs are the things that we bring into the program to make help make them happen. So things like space, personnel, funding to do them, time to do them, all very important in making sure that they um, are implemented in a successful manner. The activities are the actual things we do, such as the one-on-one the -on -one training, uh, grand rounds like this, um, workshops, webinars, watching a video, boot camps, distributing flyers, those kinds of things. Outputs are the immediate changes and evidence of the fact that we actually did the program. So things like participation, so many people participated in a program, that's an output. Satisfaction, you know, how did you like it? Did you, did you achieve uh, your, the learning objectives? Those are outputs. I also personally put knowledge, acquisition of knowledge, attitudes, and skills into the outputs category because in order for someone to change their behavior and apply what they learned, um, it has to go out a step further. And so I make those, those two pieces distinguishable. First, you acquire the knowledge and skills, and then you change and act on that. <clears throat> So application of skills, demonstrated use of knowledge, behavioral changes, those types of things such as eating more vegetables or taking meds at appropriate times, those are, kind, those are outcomes of programming, program efforts. Those outcomes then in turn should impact or help you to reach program goals. So these tend to be more long-term changes in people, organizations, or communities. And like I just said, they can also align with the goals of your program. So goals don't just say, I, I hope to teach learners about these things, but goals more broadly in terms, I'd really like to see this change, healthcare in this, on this nursing unit or whatever it happens to be. So in a very simple form, I'm gonna describe cookie logic. Going back to our cookie example earlier, Yesterday, um, I had the privilege of giving a workshop on, on this very same topic to about 32 nurses, and I asked them to perform a little exercise with cookies. So I had to um, buy cookies, two different kinds, 
that I brought to an activity, the, ex the workshop that we were doing, we had a little exercise where they were asked to do just what I basically what I asked you to do earlier, which was to taste two different kinds of cookies. Um, first of all, before they did that, they were asked to define some criteria that they were going to judge the cookies. Then I asked them to taste the cookies and then vote on their favorable, favored one. <clears throat> so those were the activities they did, and then they voted. That was the media output that they voted. Now my goal as an instructor was that they learn the basic concepts of evaluation that we talked about earlier, so evidence or information gauged against criteria leads to a decision or um, an improvement in a program. Well, suppose that instead it got him in the mood to bake cookies. So a few of them went home to bake cookies. <laughs> Others may have said, well, you know, I really like to bake cookies. I don't think I have any chocolate chips. So I better go to the store and get some. Okay. Another person might have said, well, boy, she really got me in the mood to make cookies now. And, but I don't really care for chocolate chip. I prefer oatmeal. So I'm going to go buy oatmeal cookies. These are unanticipated outcomes. And I want to demonstrate that, A, they're unanticipated, but also um, that there could be various pathways towards the outcome that you really want to um, target. And so it's important as we think about program outcomes to be aware of some intervening outcomes and um, unanticipated outcomes that may happen along the way. Um, and those are captured through more process types of evaluations, but you can be aware of them in other ways too. Um, for example, an unanticipated outcome of a program that I, I worked with a few years ago with a nonprofit organization is they had built a program to um, give parenting skills in the homes to parents who are about to lose their parental rights. And one of their measures of success was, the, in an indirect measure, was to reduce the stress levels of these parents. If they, they felt that the parents could parent better, they'd be less stressful themselves, but also the family stress would be minimized. And so that was one of their, their outcome measures. And as they looked at that, yes, they had great results, right? They did a pre-post test, and then they did another one, um, I think it was a month out or three months out. can't remember the exact time period. But they found out that the program did exactly what they wanted it to, reduce the parental stress right away. When they took the next measure, it was complete, the effect of the program was completely lost. And so it said to them, well, what's going on here? Um, they, they decided there, there was a couple things that, it, that could be creating that. First of all, they hadn't built in anything to sustain the learning. And this is a group of parents. Remember, you're talking behavioral changes. You've got to sustain those behaviors. They have to become more habitual. So you have to check in with them frequently following the intervention. So that's what they focused on. The other thing that they learned that in some of their metrics that, that they had chosen for their evaluation, and this was a retrospective, so at this point I didn't have much influence over what was um, used. But one of the things they discovered was that um, their metric was designed basically for the moms and not the dads in the family unit, or the men. So they went back and revisited that one. 
The other thing they thought about was, gee whiz, we have teams of women going into these families. How are we relating to the men in the families? So there was a real gender concern throughout this whole um, intervention process. And they have since now changed their teams, their tools, and those kinds of things. And they're re-evaluating to see if it makes a difference. But those were unanticipated outcomes. They had never given any of that a thought. So um, that that that's a, a piece that's really important to keep in mind as, as we go through a process like this. Logic modeling. Um, logic models can be illustrated in multiple forms. Just a minute ago, you saw a very linear form, but they um, can also be displayed in a circular pattern. In fact, yesterday, we put up some that were in circular patterns because it demonstrates more of the improvement process, the feedback loop that you find out, you get measures of outcomes, and then what you learn from them feeds back into as an input into your program, and it um, allows you to make changes that might be more effective. Um, it all, they also really help to focus and, and determine the scope of an evaluation. Um, we, when we sit back and really map out how we think our programs, programs are working to produce change, uh, it really gives us a, a, a nice big picture to think about, well, you know, where should we be spending our evaluation efforts? We can think of lots and lots of outcomes, but really what's the most critical outcome we want to be focused on right now? And, and how can we um, <clears throat> really think about that in terms of our program and how it, it leads to that outcome? The other thing um, uh, that I'd like to mention is once logic models are created, your program theories are created, there's a way to actually evaluate um, evaluate them to determine if there's things that you sh other things you be should be thinking of other pathways you might be consider, and so one of the things to do is to examine your assumptions in terms of the logic that you're making in your in your program models. Another is to go out and see what's already known about similar programs and the changes they produce. Um, there is a lot of similar programs out in the, in the country and go call your colleagues and find out what they're doing and what they've learned because what happens is we might find out that somebody else has been working on, on this very outcome and, and a similar program for a long time doing it across multiple contexts and, and over and over again it doesn't work. And so why should we waste our time evaluating and designing programs that are probably not going to work. So it really, it really helps to inform you. Um, the literature is also another place and other experts in the field. So it's important to really step back from your logic model and look and see what else is known about the, the types of programs and the types of outcomes that you're trying to evaluate. What questions does it raise about the program? Um, Typically, when you create logic models, you want to be working with stakeholder groups to do so. And in that process, stakeholders, and I think I'm going to get into this in a minute, but stakeholders are um, incre incredibly valuable in terms of their perspectives and how they think your program works and coming up with questions to help guide your evaluation efforts. So steps in program evaluation. There are five basic ones. The first one is to engage stakeholders. 
Again, I have this floating S. I think it switches in computers. <laughs> um, so you engage your stakeholders, get them involved. We'll talk in a minute about what different types of stakeholders. Focus the evaluation, and, when, and during that time, you'll be looking at use and um, purpose and those kinds of things. Collect data, analyze, interpret the information that you do collect, and then use report and use the findings. So going through those steps in a little bit more detail, engaging your key stakeholders um, means you can engage them by having calling them all to a meeting together, or you might go talk to one of groups of them separately, or whatever it happens to be, but really think about who has a stake, who really cares about your program, and what might be helpful to them in terms of the information you gain from your evaluation. Determine why you are doing the program and evaluating it. Stakeholders are really great and, and very helpful there as well. And determining how you will use the findings from the evaluation. Use is critical in evaluation. If you're not going to use the findings of an evaluation, don't bother doing it. It takes time and resources. Use program theory to determine what outcomes are of greater interest or most important. So if you do a nice program theory, you've got a variety of outcomes out on the page that you're thinking about. But really working with your um, stakeholders can help you to prioritize and decide, well, what, what are we going to focus na on now? What, what's the most relevant outcome or set of, small set of outcomes to be focusing on this year? So some ba to continue the basic steps, um, the next step would be to establish evaluation questions that focus the evaluation. And I um, wish I shared yesterday a matrix that helps do that. You think about different ways, um, how, how important the question is to answer. Is it low-hanging fruit? Does it have high relevance? Um, what will you do with the information and once you answer that question? The, all those kinds of questions come into play when you're trying to pro focus and prioritize your evaluation questions. Design a plan to collect and analyze information. We'll go through a few simple designs. Collect and analyze the information that you gather and report and disseminate findings. Again, um, in a participatory fashion, your stakeholders can be very helpful, not only in terms of the upfront pieces, establishing use, questions, and purpose, but also in helping you to collect data. In our age of very, very limited resources, they can be extremely helpful in, in collecting um, data and helping to analyze and interpret it. So it's important that, and also disseminated, it's, it's important to think about them as we go through the entire evaluation process. The final piece is managing the evaluation. Um, there are lots of pieces to managing an evaluation. One of them is human subjects considerations. It's these are we're working with human subjects as educators, and we need to consider their anonymity, their confidentiality, their right to to volunteer and withdraw at any time. All those things should be considerations. If you're working in an academic institution. You should talk about your program evaluation with the IRB prior to its implementation because sometimes, and in some cases, um, probably in many cases, more often than not, um, 
evaluation should be approved by an institutional review board or at least considered exempt by them under um, the categories of the federal regulations. So how do we determine program outcomes? Well, we start out with engaging our stakeholders. So think for a moment, who are some of your stakeholders and what stake do they have in your programs? Any of you have any ideas about some of the stakeholders? Nursing leadership. Nursing leadership. The learner. The learner, yep, absolutely. Um, faculty. Faculty could, yes, yeah. If you're asking for funding. Ah, funders, mm-hmm. Big stakeholder in some programs. <laughs> That's a good, good answers, good, good ideas. Um, so what questions do they have about your programming efforts? What kinds of questions do you think they might ask? How about leaders? What kinds of questions do some of the leadership folks have? Well, they might want to know if we're, if we will meet some of the strategic planning Oh, sure. Guidelines of the organization. How the programs feed into the strategic yeah. planning goals yeah. um, of the organization. Mm -hmm. How much time away from the work? Oh, how much time away from the work the program, the program takes? The how much time away from the workplace is the program going to take? And what are the specific outcomes okay. that so are applicable to what they have to get their employees to do? Sure, sure. So they're very interested in, okay, this is a great educational program, but it's going to take time away from employees doing their jobs. And so what's, what's the cost to the organization of doing that? Um, and also thinking about it in terms of well, what's the benefit of it? So what's the benefit of your program so that I, you know, it makes sense to give them this, this release time to participate in the training. They are thinking about those things. How about learners? What's in it for me? What's in it for me? That's right. It's got to be meaningful. So they're going to think, oh, what am I going to get out of this and how am I going to use it, right? How about um, faculty? What stake do they have in programs? I think they would want to know that what that the information they're sharing is going to be what the learner needs. Mm -hmm. So their question might be around: Is the information that I'm providing being effectively being used or being um, meeting the state the learner's needs? Mm -hmm. So what kind of outcomes then, kind of taking those one step further, what kind of outcomes are of interest to your stakeholders? What kind of outcomes might those, those leaders and administrators be interested in? How are you going to apply your learning to the job itself? How you will apply the learning to the job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're going to be really concerned. If I send somebody to that training program, are they going to really use that? <laughs> That's right. So they take the information and apply it to whatever their role is. To. Mm -hmm. Yeah, is it directly applicable to the yeah. roles that they're in? Uh huh. What kinds of outcomes are learners interested in? 
How will it advance their professionalism? Huh. And it also potentially how it will um, advance their performance evaluation. Ah, how it will advance their performance evaluation and how it's going to advance their, their career, their, their promotional ladders. <laughs> okay. Other ideas about learners that they might be interested in? How about some of them might be interested in applying the skills to a new job, too, a different career. Um, might yeah. be thinking something new. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, those are all good examples. Um, so other stakeholders are uh, boards of directors. Uh, hospitals have boards of directors. Academic institutions, nonprofit organizations—they're not called boards of directors so much in academic institutions. They have different kinds of names, um, but. Um, <clears throat> Some of their outcomes are of interest might be more financial or um, in the example I have here, by 2015, there's a 15% increase in the number of women under 20 who receive prenatal care. So they might, um, for example, in a medical center, be really interested in targeting certain populations and the outcomes of certain populations and then how then um, do our programs feeding into those targeted groups. Funders are interested in things like program sustainability, self-supporting. They might give you a grant for one year, and, and a lot of them now want to know how you're going to sustain the programs once you've run out of grant money because they don't like to see the effective programs go away. And part of your um, uh, application and grant, you're doing evaluation and you're showing that you're effective. And so they want to see that continue. Um, program directors and managers, as we just spoke about, might be looking at the benefits of the program in a cost-effective way, and does it exceed the cost to implement, um, in, in to implement it by 5%? So they might be saying, you know, if, if you're not, if you're doing a program and it's um, losing money, why are we doing it? We'd rather have it break even or making a little bit of profit, even better, making a little profit for us if it's one that you receive profits from. So, or money from. So, those are the kind, different kinds of things that people think about, <laughs> different stakeholders. Oh, I guess we kind of did this already. <laughs> I got ahead of myself a little bit. Okay, so we'll go on. Um, so, typical questions for outcomes evaluation are are these GATs or outcomes the results of our program? So is good, um, are healthy babies in any way affected by our efforts to teach moms about good prenatal care? Um, and what, to what extent do our programs contribute to those kind of outcomes? Is the program effective at producing the desired outcome? So in other words, another example might be, um, if we were trying to influence our patients' eating habits in some way, you know, are, are, is our program effective at actually producing that kind of change? Are they eating more vegetables and fruits? Are they eating less potato chips? That kind of thing. Is our program better at achieving the desired outcome than another approach or doing nothing at all? So this is comparing two different kinds of educational approaches or programs. So we're really trying to find out which is the better way of doing things. 
How do we know that the program creates a sustainable outcome? Again, going back to the funding idea is, okay, we do this program, we've shown it to be a, produce an effective outcome, but how can we sustain it so it continues to produce uh, the outcome that, we're, that we desire? When do I collect outcome data? So here I'm going to go through um, some basic study designs for outcomes evaluation. Um, uh, oh, okay, before I get into the details, that's right, I had this slide in about talking about um, designs for formative studies. So these are the studies to improve programs during a program's implementation process. So we'll be watching how a program is implemented to see if it's implemented in a way that we anticipate it would to um, lead to those outcomes. We also might take various snapshots in time um, over several points in order to see how the process of the program actually produces an outcome because there's some lapse time in there and we might need to follow that to see what's going on during that that, uh, that space, that gap. In summative studies of outcomes, we're actually just looking at the outcome itself and whether or not we've seen that change or not. Remember, outcomes are changes. Some common data collection points are baseline immediately following a program and at reasonable time points prior to impact. I'll be talking more in more detail about those kind of um, evaluation designs in a minute. When possible, use electronic tracking and data collection tools. It makes life a lot easier, so anticipate that if you're going to go into an evaluation that's very important, it's getting funded, it's, um, you're, you're trying to demonstrate a really um, important contribution to a health outcome, track that information electronically and, and, um, and use the tools that make it easier for you. So designing study programs for effectiveness and efficacy. So outcomes evaluations are, um, if uh, many of them fall into this category. Program effectiveness um, basically means that you're studying people who voluntarily come to your programs. Um, might be mandatory, but they're pretty self-selected. You don't randomize across groups. They, they, you're evaluating who comes. Um, and that can be a biased group, so that's important to keep in mind at all times. Efficacy studies are those that are more rigorous, that include randomization, so you either randomize to two different programs, you randomize to a program or not a program, whatever it happens to be, but that way it helps to reduce some of the bias that people select into the learner preferences that learners have for various types of programs and topics. Um, so here's an example. If I were to do an exercise education program to see whether or not it reduced the blood pressure of a, a patient of mine, um, uh, one thing I might think of is, okay, so blood pressure is an outcome that I'll be monitoring, and so I'll just send them home with information about how to exercise and then watch the blood pressure. This is with no knowledge of what the blood pressure was ahead of time. It's been, this patient's been somewhere else. I don't know what the blood pressure is, but I, I know it's high today. I'm going to say, go exercise, and I'm going to capture the outcome next time it comes for a visit. Is this a, a true outcomes evaluation by definition of an outcome? Mm -hmm. 
No, outcomes are changes. You can't, you have to be able to capture a change. In this case, you would not know what the prior blood pressure was. And so you would not be able to capture a change through a single, um, by a, a single measurement of a, an outcome like a blood pressure. Um, also blood pressure very, we know fluctuates over time. So we have to take that into account too. And I'll get to that in a minute. But in order to capture a change, we need to do a pretest. So we need to know it in advance, a baseline, a pretest. Um, and so to capture that change, the, the, we add an, another test prior to our implementation. In, so in a program, that's exactly what we would do. We would collect baseline data, conduct our program, and then collect the same data again to look for a change. Again, going back to the design I described earlier with the nonprofits, especially in terms of blood pressure, we would want to continue to take, um, monitor that outcome in, over time. And we would also want to continually monitor and track the patient's exercise patterns because those will probably change over time too. So the point here is that those outcomes often have to be measured over time. It provides, um, some additional rigorous rigor to the design and gives you more accurate information about the outcome. If we decided to compare it to another program that added a nutrition component, um, then we would have a program to compare it to. We could also do that in a way that doesn't have pretests in either intervention, but only captures the blood pressure readings following. And we'd have a little bit more rigor because we would have another program to compare it to. Or if we compared it to people who were not in our exercise program that had civil, similar lifestyle characteristics and things like that, um, age, all those matching features, uh, we also might be able to demonstrate the effectiveness of our program without having a pretest. Again, more rigor with, by adding a pretest and again, you can do this in a sequential fashion and keep collecting um, data over time. So those are designs of effectiveness. And then to, to truly make them more rigorous yet in efficacy studies, those are the studies where we add randomi randomization. So we randomize to either the full exercise group, exercise only group or the exercise plus nutrition group in this example. The next thing to do to assess an outcome, blood, blood pressure is pretty easy and straightforward, easy to think about, but some outcomes are harder to think about as something to measure. And so one way we can get them to be measurable outcomes is to put them in a language called smart language. And so it's a criteria that um, we use to, to articulate an outcome in a way that it can be assessed. So the, the outcome would have to be articulated as a very in very specific terms and not ambiguous, result of an action, those kind of things. Like oftentimes people will ask me, well, I want to know if my program is successful. So the outcome is success. And I say, well, what do you mean by success? You have to define that again, sort of really getting a clear understanding of what it is you're trying to assess. It has to be measurable. So it's something that's achievable. It's practical to assess. It's cost effective to collect. You actually have the, the resources to collect it and it can be quantified or qualified. So you can collect it through um, a variety of means by either direct measures, counting, um, 
doing interviews, whatever it happens to be, it has to be something that you can actually collect information about. Yeah. Action-oriented. So again, change is provoked. So an outcome should have an action word in it, and it should be an action word that's oriented around change. Relevant, it needs to be plausible and feasible. And again, it's time bound, referencing a specific period of time. So do you want that outcome to be um, witnessed in a week, two weeks, two months, a year? When do you want to see that change occur? Examples of smart outcomes, okay. The proportion of nursing grand round participants who baked chocolate chip cookies within seven days of the session on outcomes evaluation increased twofold from 2014 to 2015. See how that statement has now changed from how I described it earlier in my logic model example? <laughs> it's very specific. It's very time bound. I should even have a percent where that proportion, the word proportion is. Um, it's a, you know, it's very, very specific in terms of when I expect to see that outcome. Here's another example: the proportion of participants in the exercise program who obtained normal blood pressure, blood pressures increased by 30 percent over six months. So that's another example, and that could even get a little bit more specific. So think about what evidence you will collect to demonstrate the outcomes that you would like to achieve. An outcome indicator is the evidence or information that represents the outcome of interest and helps to answer an evaluation question. So for example, an indicator of a healthy newborn is an APGAR score over seven. Now, I think that's correct. <laughs> um, it's, um, I looked that up, uh, so it should, should hopefully be correct. So that would be an indicator of whether or not moms were receiving, were receiving um, good, or pr practicing good, prenatal care, that they were getting good prenatal care, um, and so a healthy newborn is, is born, um, and that would be a desired outcome. Um, <clears throat> the other important thing to note in this definition of an indicator is that um, I, I mentioned that they have to answer an evaluation question. If you're collecting data that doesn't answer an evaluation question, um, we shouldn't be collecting it. You, at all times, it's important that outcomes evaluation be focused on the questions you're trying to answer. And we can, as we start collecting data for evaluations, it can get pretty interesting sometimes, and we can start going off in all sorts of directions and decide to collect different data. So one thing that helps us to stay focused and within the scope of our evaluation is to continually maintain a, a, a focus on the questions that we're asking. That's critical. If I can't, I, if you learn nothing else from today's grand rounds, that would be it. <laughs> Quantitative data can be collected in multiple formats, surveys, psychometric questionnaires, such as inventories <coughs> and scales, checklists, matrices, recorded measures, directly recorded measures, a variety of ways. It's important also not to necessarily think that you have to reinvent the wheel each and, t each and every time you need to assess an outcome. Um, consult your colleagues across the country, consult the literature, consult things like um, the Educational Testing Service or the American Psychological Association. A lot of these folks and experts in the field that have published have reported reliable and valid instruments that can be used or slightly modified for your own use. 
Um, when you modify them, you have to be careful um, in the sense that they have to still be assessing the same basic constructs. So you can recontextualize them, but you want them to be oriented around the same construct that you're trying to assess. Um, the other thing that's important to keep in mind is that when you do that, run all the item analyses and other analyses that have been conducted to try and re-demonstrate the reliability and validity of those instruments so that you can continue to say that, yes, this had good reliability and validity, we slightly modified it, and then we demonstrated that it still has good reliability and validity. So those, those analyses are, are critical and should, should be done as often as possible. Important considerations are self versus other administered um, surveys and questionnaires. Um, there are times when it's more appropriate to um, be delivering self-administered questionnaires and other times when it's better that somebody else does it. Um, psychometric instrument or um, psycho psychological instruments are sometimes best are often best from what I've read. Um, done by the person that you're trying to assess because they're very sensitive topics and um, if somebody else starts asking a person about very sensitive topics, they might be reluctant to provide accurate information. Um, the other thing is sometimes it's not appropriate for if we're working with other cultural groups, for example, it might be more appropriate to have someone within that cultural group actually be delivering the survey or conducting the interview or whatever happens to be collecting that data because again the person might be more willing to give, the participant might be more willing and to give accurate information we always want to pilot. I think we, we all know that, but it can uh, not be said enough. Um, it's important to pilot. And when we do pilot things like surveys, it's really important that people have an opportunity to write comments on the survey because sometimes when we're going through surveys, we're thinking, oh, that doesn't have my response, or I don't understand that question. So those are the th kinds of things you want to capture ahead of time so you can eliminate any kind of ambiguity or uncertainty as, as the actual instrument um, is delivered. And I already mentioned use existing tools as much as possible in the validity and reliability um, piece. Tips for questionnaire design, I'm going to run through some quickly because surveys are very popular and very much overused, so be cautious too about how often you're using them and if you're in an organization that uses a lot of them, try and find out who else is doing them and maybe piggybacking on somebody else's efforts or working together on a, on a questionnaire. Avoid multiple responses to a single question or item, meaning that you know, avoid setting it up so that people are res responding with two different answers. I, one I see that drives me crazy is um, you put out a Likert scale and somebody circles two and three <laughs> at the same time. Um, so try and avoid that and make your instructions very clear. Uh, avoid double barrel questions. Those are questions and items that ask two things at once. Um, because you don't really know what they're responding to, and they might respond one way to one half of the question and another way to the other. Can I ask a question about that? So if we were um, asking something in it, so in the question it has an and, mm -hmm. like what did you think about A and B? Is that inappropriate? Should I mean because you don't know if the person's referring to one, the other, or right. both? Right, right, you don't. Yeah. If it's important to you to know the distinction, then yeah. you should have them as separate questions. Okay. Sometimes I've lumped them together when I really 
only interested in sort of the general reaction yeah. around that topic area, and that's okay. Yeah. But it helps to keep the question item numbers down. Yeah. But if you really care about the differences, then you'd want to separate those. Store categorical data as codes and not words, especially phrases. This is it was primarily referring to electronic data collection. Um, I often see, and this was much to my surprise when working with graduate students, how they didn't understand how to store electronic data. And you don't want to have um, more than one response in a field, and you also don't want to have words in a field. You want to recode all the, the um, words that are in your questionnaire as responses. Um, and so it will require that you keep what's called a coding dictionary. So one means this, and two means bananas, and three means oranges, and that kind of thing. You don't want to put bananas, apples, and oranges into your fields because that can um, create er a lot of extra error. And it's also very hard to evaluate in our statistical packages. Um, Keep flow of survey items in one direction. So if you start a survey and your responses are all to the right of the page, keep them that way so that people are following each item and looking to the right. Don't all of a sudden switch and have all those responses just underneath each one or start going the other way. Um, people get really confused by that and I'm more likely to just stop doing your survey. Um, so it's important to keep those items in one direction. Provide transition statements when necessary. So if you switch trains of thoughts, let the respondent know that you're going to change subject matter or change how you're asking for responses so that they're aware of that. Place demographic information at the end of the form and place sensitive items in the middle. The demographic information is counterintuitive to a lot of us, but really we collect more and better responses if we put it at the end. And so um, it's best to put them there. Place sensitive items in the middle. People coming into surveys with sensitive items are uh, not very trustworthy, and so if they need to be into the survey a little bit before they're comfortable enough giving those responses, and it's important to put them in the middle and then back off on them towards the end. Um, and pilot. <laughs> Can't say that enough. Qualitative data collection. There are many ways to collect qualitative data. So this is interviews, focus groups, observations written documents, and video voice is a, one I've seen that is pretty impressive, um, used a lot in communities and especially with children, um, where you're giving them a camera and asking them to go out and take pictures of the changes that have occurred in their environments and their families and their communities that reflect a change that's related to your programming efforts. So it can be a really useful way to capture information and then you would um, group those and analyze those pictures like you would other data. They become collections that you look at and you say, okay, is the, do these kinds of pictures fall into a certain category and, and whatnot? So um, it can be a, a very useful tool. Also, it reminded me when I talked about kids, if you're working with kids and you're doing survey items with kids, um, I've seen where the response scales are actually in little pictures that kids can relate to, especially if they can't, if they're not reading age and that kind of thing. So, so think about being creative and how you how you conduct your data collection and prepare your tools. What's a good number for a focus group? A good number for a focus group. 
It's, um, there's a really good book on this. It's about, and I'm blanking on the person, Kramer wrote a book on focus groups. He's out of Minnesota and he does some really good work with focus And his recommendation is, I, I believe it's a right around six. Um, that's been my experience too. You can, you can do them, I've done them in smaller groups, but that, it really is the ideal. Uh, you get too many, it's hard to keep track of, of people and give adequate time for responses and things like that. So um, six is a good, good size. And, and do you have someone transcribe, I mean, how do you sort of keep track of all the conversation? Do you have someone as a assigned as a recorder? Oh, um, focus groups should always be accompanied by two people. Um, one would be the person that the facilitator of the focus group. The other is the recorder, and the recorder has um, the the job of all the logistical pieces, like making sure the tape recorder is on. You always want to have two, by the way. We just continue. We just conducted a bunch of focus groups, and if we hadn't had two, even there was one time when we lost the whole focus group completely oh. because of uh, both of our tape recorders conked. <laughs> um, but anyway, that, um, yes, a recorder monitors that, they take notes, um, but what transcription services have gotten very sophisticated now. So when we, uh, we use uh, online transcription service for our focus groups, we uploaded the record, we recorded them, we uploaded the recordings to the, the service, they were able to distinguish the voices for us and they um, actually identified them separately. Then one of the things that I had a graduate student do a few years back that was very, I thought was very helpful, so we did it with ours too, was to actually color code the, the voices in each of the transcripts so that you could see the change on who was talking. And it's just sort of this visual way that's a little, that facilitates your analysis a, um, better. And um, you know, it's not 100%. You have to go through and check them and make sure that the, the changes are made appropriately. There's a couple times when S4 was really S1, speaker four was really speaker oh, one. Yeah. So you have to double check them. But if you've been there, you'll, re you'll remember that yeah. stuff. So I, when I, I always have two people code transcripts, and at least two people code transcripts and focus groups and things. And so one of those people has to be a person that was actually part of that focus group so that they can check on that kind of thing. Um, that, that helps a lot. Uh, observations, you can use things like rubrics and checklists and all sorts of different things to make observations. You can take notes. Um, we did a focus group a few years back where um, we, we did an intervention and um, we had, we were collecting data. Yeah, we didn't record the intervention, but some things went on during it that were had a, had a major effect on what we were look, what we were trying to assess, and we didn't capture it. And so immediately we built in some observation of the intervention so that we could we wouldn't miss it down the road. Um, it it can be very useful to have somebody sitting there writing notes as you do an intervention because unexpected things happen, and in ways that you, again, unanticipated outcomes, in ways you don't imagine. <laughs> so it, it, it's helpful. 
um, especially in sensitive air, topic areas, we were working in career development, so it was it was important. We actually saw somebody leave the the intervention to talk to her mentor and came back very upset, and we missed the whole thing. <laughs> so um, it happens. Um, important considerations: selection uh, and qualitative. Uh, data analysis and sampling. Your selection is usually very deliberate. You want it to be heterogeneous um, because you're dealing with small small sample sizes, small groups. You want it to be very representative of the population you're studying. So you um, typically will be um, very careful about um, and deliberate about your selection process. Uh, trustworthiness of data is established with triangulation typically um, and um, so you're looking at collecting outcomes in multiple ways. You're also um, wanting to assess outcomes using multiple, for example, in transcripts, as I mentioned earlier, multiple coders, um, multiple uh, have observations and transcripts kind of double, um, help triangulate themselves. Sometimes um, it, they can. Uh, an observation can help to explain what you're hearing in a, in a recording, that kind of thing. So having those multiple forms of data collection is really helping to establish the trustworthiness of your data. Also member checking. When you do um, an interview with someone and you've interpreted it later, do a summary of your interpretation and send it back to the original participant and say, does this jive with what you told me? Is Do you think, you know, is, did I correctly interpret the information you gave me? Um, that's extremely helpful in establishing the trustworthiness of your data. Uh, I spoke briefly already about number of participants. Um, it generally is small in qualitative data collection. The goal is to continue to sample and, and conduct transcripts or conduct focus groups, interviews, observations until you keep saying, seeing the same things over and over and over again. So um, that's really what determines your sample size there. Uh, reporting and disseminating findings. There are multiple ways to report and disseminating find, disseminate findings, um, including written reports, oral presentations, uh, storytelling. Uh, American Indian populations, for example, um, as part of their culture, they're storytellers. So if you were working with one, for example, an appropriate way to disseminate an evaluation um, in that culture might be through storytelling and would be very um, except, uh, welcomed, I think, by that culture. Posters or other pictorial representations, again, such as video voice. Um, someone mentioned yesterday in our workshop storyboards, and I thought that was a, a clever way of disseminating information and summarizing findings. And a lot depends on your audience. You know, do your audience need a short form, a quick poster look? Do they need an executive summary, a full written report? Um, so keep your audience in mind as you're, you're doing these two. Um, timing. There's a, a, an increasing emphasis in the evaluation field on, on providing feedback as you're doing the evaluation. So for the people that you're working with, you know, give them feedback. Let them know what's going on. Um, in uh, developmental evaluation, that's part of the process. You feed back information to the various stakeholders so they can be responsive to that information um, and continue to move forward 
but it, it helps in, in no matter it, regardless of the approach you're using. An outcomes evaluation, give them a preliminary idea of what you're seeing in your outcomes and, and allow your various stakeholders to react to that information. Um, and then, of course, when you're complete, you would want to write a full report or give a full report in some other means, as we've already talked about. So some key points. Where am I at here? Oh, wow. It took longer than I thought. <laughs> some key takeaways are that outcomes are changes that result from a program's activities. Very important. Outcomes are operationally defined as specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time-bound. Smart. Uh, program logic helps to establish clear outcomes and a focus for the evaluation. And evaluation designs often incorporate pre-post tests and or comparison groups, but in looking at formative processes, um, we also might be using some qualitative methods. And mixed methods as well. So um, definitely make those considerations based on what your evaluation questions are and what you're most interested in learning. Any questions? We have about 10 minutes. Each time I hear this, it gets clearer. <laughs> Deb says each time she hears this, it gets clearer. She was at our full two-day workshop the last couple days. <laughs> and what I said at the workshop is that it's beyond looking at just the learner, whether or not the learner achieved the objectives, but looking at the bigger picture, the bigger program. We could even try this with tobacco in the fall. Like you know, we've done it a number of years now. We haven't really looked at the that a real program evaluation. So this might be valuable. Yeah, that's why I came, actually. Good. Because there was a question, um, we have a, uh, an annual tobacco treatment uh, conference. And last year was the fifth year. And this year, it was a question at the end of last year whether or not we should have the program again this year. And it was a challenging year last year with getting speakers mm -hmm. um, and then they changed, and mm -hmm. the program was a real challenge. And at one point, you wondered whether you should cancel the program. Mm. But we went through with it, and then um, got new energy from the evaluations that we had received in regards oh. to doing it again this year. But because of that, I was uh, wondering whether or not we should do it again for the seventh annual Sierra Coop Conference, depending upon um, how this year goes. Mm -hmm. And that's because last year was the only year that we had such a troubling time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, the evaluation, we, we had a half a day session <coughs> on one day, and then we had a full day the next, and we never had that combination before. So it was really confusing, actually, on setting it up and getting the right... Because you changed the plan. Yeah, yeah that was yeah. very... Registration was crazy. The rich creation... The, the system for registration totally changed from the educational piece. Yeah, that so, can that can either work to your advantage or not. <laughs> so I mean, that's why I, um, I thought, and I have actually benefited from your presentation. So thank you very oh, much. Oh, you're welcome. So with your with that reoccurring conference, are you sensing any kind of changes in the audience needs other than? sort of the direct things you assess right away, but are you sensing a change in the culture at all around this topic and around the immediate groups that you're working with? Because the reason I ask is, is a few years back I directed a, 
um, some clinical research training programs. And we used to do that too. We did um, the, uh, some workshops every year. Um, and at one point we had, we kind of were wondering, well, have we trained to our max now and we need to do something different because we've gotten the culture, the population we're working with up to a certain level and now we need to take it to another level. So are you sensing anything like that? Well, because of the change in the healthcare system, the accountable care. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, yeah, that's big. Where the, popu the tobacco treatment is um, key now. Uh-huh. You know, you can't really, I mean, for instance, some um, taking someone into surgery, for instance, they're looking at what their hemoglobin A1C is. It can't be above this. Um, are they using tobacco or not? There's, there's like, uh, certain elements mm -hmm. that from the greater population and the healing, et cetera. And uh, so the requirements are getting more strict so that it's a, we, we have a different audience now. Uh -huh. we, we have found that the okay. providers are listening. And we also know that the tobacco treatment specialists who are providing that um, need to be aware of the transition of the use of the combustible cigarettes to the electronic. Uh -huh. cigarettes and that's a really big issue because huh. it's just switching one thing for the other and I think that but people don't really know huh. it. So we have Interesting. New, new material this year which I think folks are interested in whereas last year it was at the end of one era and now we're at the beginning of another. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. So um, that's a really good question that you asked though. Yes. Yeah. I think that's where we were at at the end of last year. Mm -hmm. um, so now, for instance, we have a keynote speaker that's going to be speaking on the cardiovascular issues. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the change from the Accountable Care Act is impacting how cardiovascular operates. Huh? Whether or not they can bring people in as an inpatient, what the criteria is, and they're interested in the healing, not that they weren't before, but they're more accountable. Yeah, yeah. Now, so there, so that that kind of a speaker, we feel is going to be, um, you know, well received. Yeah, what a great time to assemble a, a stakeholder group of physicians and other practitioners around the topic of how accountable care is influencing um, their practice. And, and, and an example like yours, in a specific uh, specific topic like tobacco use. That would be a, a very interesting way to create topics for next year, you know, as you move along. That's an excellent suggestion. Yeah, great. How long should a typical evaluation of a program take? I mean, what period of time does it take to do? An, an outcomes evaluation? What period of time does it take to do an outcomes evaluation? That depends. <laughs> evaluation, no two evaluations are ever alike. No two outcomes evaluations are better are ever alike. Um, I, one thing I didn't mention that I meant to was that you, I put up all those approaches to evaluation. An evaluator doesn't use just one approach at a time. We, we mix and match those approaches according to the context and the types of questions that are being asked. And so at any given time, the evaluation can be real simple or it could be big, it can use participatory, it can combine participatory with outcomes. I mean, it, it just runs the, the range of practice. Um, 
And like you're aware of the MM&I conference and the Department of Medicine that we're evaluating. And we started out thinking this would be pretty simple and it turned out it turned out to be a very complex systems level evaluation done over a three year period, planned over a three year period of time. So you just never know. Yeah. 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 So you get into it. This is great. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Thank you all. Appreciate it. And we'll just shut that off. <laughs>